Looks like we are live. It is value after hours. It's 10 a 10.30-ish a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. Uh, special edition of value after hours. It's just JT and I. I don't know if we've got enough words to fill up an hour, JT. What are we going to do? We do not. So we will be... <laughs> This one could be a bit of a slog, so buckle your seatbelts. Billy, Billy's on vacay yeah. for a week or two. You got people in the in the Caribbean, Scotland, Germany. Cool. I had uh, I was in Vale last week for a ValueX Vale oh, that yeah. uh, that Vitaly puts on, and it was uh, quite a good quite a good get together. I uh, enjoyed a lot of the people. Really sharp some good pitches. Uh, I don't know if there's any money to be made, but uh, I was very, I had a good time and I, uh, we're going to really need a lot. It. You're going to need to extend, but you're going to need yeah. a lot more, more. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. This might be more <laughs> bearish than ordinary. Cause we need, we need Billy's sunny optimism to keep, to keep bearish Jake and I on, uh, on track. But so this might be the uh, markets in turmoil. Oh, Bill said everything was going to zero last time. So I don't know. <laughs> I think he likes. I think he likes the. I don't want to speak for Bill because he's not here. But he, I think he. I think he's happy with the underlying, and he's he, he's being facetious about the the multiples. I think you're right. <clears throat> so right. now now I'm calling in from the basement in Michigan at uh, visiting some some family. So hopefully there's kids that don't come in and uh, try to play darts or shuffleboard because uh, we've got that that sweet Midwest basement action that we don't we don't have in California. It looks good. Um, so I, I, I've just come off a podcast with, uh, with Zach at Know Your Risk Radio, and um, I think it's let's 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 go through a few of things because I, I think we've been trying to work out a little bit where we are through this process, and I'm happy for everybody to chime in to on the sides. We're going to need some audience participation to fill <laughs> to fill the ad this time, right? When I when I look at it's impossible to know what sort of bear we're in right we don't know if it's a 2016 or 2018 and there's a pretty big bounce today so everybody's sort of bottom fishing around here trying to find the bottom trying to call the bottom when i look at if this is a 2016 or a 2018 then i've got no idea if we probably just rally back up who knows and then i think we hang around waiting for a big crash after that but if this is a 2000 2002 2007 2009 type drawdown then we haven't had the 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 bulk of the selling yet so how does that make a- you feel <laughs> so that's a happy thought uh well so i mean a couple thoughts there i mean first of all the level of over valuation overprice was at a very very large extreme if you looked at last year so even coming off a fair amount as it has, you know, I mean, when you start from so high and you have, I'm a little skeptical that we're completely, you know, we've worked out, we've wrung out all of the excess exuberance at this point, given, and not that there hasn't been plenty of pain, which is there has, and there hasn't really been anywhere to hide, but that the, the party that led up to that this would be like going on a like multi-day Vegas bender, just absolute, you know, no holds barred. Uh, and then 
you wake up the next morning and you're like, ah, I'll pop one Advil and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good and I'm done. Some Pedialyte. I, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> well, I think that's a good analogy because I think that's right. I think it's, I think we've had the first blowout and uh, day two, people can rally for day two. It's day three or day four that really separates the men from the boys. <laughs> Well, I will say though, that if you are finding good value in a company that you feel like you understand and you like the price of it, I would not let any of this other talk dissuade you from purchasing. I think that that's still the smart thing to do. The idea of trying to time these things, I think is foolhardy. So if you like what you uh, can potentially scoop up right now and you think it's a good deal, then I would encourage you to, to not that this is investment advice, but buy what you know uh, when you like the price of it. And over, I think you'll do just fine. Yeah, I agree with that. Un- absolutely unpredictable. Who knows if you if you if it rallies from here, you'd be very upset you didn't buy some of these things around here. It's just that uh, I think I, I also like to be prepared mentally for uh, for very big drawdowns when they come, so we're not too panicked in the middle of it. So I think through all of the the nasty scenarios that that could be confronting us, and if this is a we haven't seen mega bears for so long that I think people forget what they what they look like and what they feel like. And one of the characterizations of them is this multiple rallies on the way down to the bottom. And so 2000, I forget now, 2008, 2009, but I think it was like uh, 16 14, or 17, right? 17 yeah, I mean, just something just relentless. Um, heartbreaker rallies. Rallies that got sold. And uh, it was exhaustion. And I, 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 I I was buying net nets and I was just, I was amazed at how, uh, how many net nets there were around at the time or probably didn't appreciate the, how, how unusual that opportunity was at the time. And I, I started looking at net nets again this time. There are more net nets around, but it's still not, it's not the fire cell that we saw. And it may be that it, the screening's too good and so on, but I kind of think it's a, I still think it's just exuberance in the market. It's still here. <clears throat> yeah, it's less for sure. Uh, and I think everyone, it seems like recognizes that this is a healthy correction, but I don't, do you bottom when you, everyone is still pretty happy to like with what they own and real happy, like to be buying the dips and that's, that's not really what capitulation looks like, is it? No, it's exhaustion. I mean, we, we, we came in before we, before we sold off, we were, Shilapi in the high to mid 30s, which in contrast to 2000, it got to 44. So it's nowhere near, well, not nowhere near, but it wasn't quite as bad as it was in 2000. And now we're sitting just under 30 uh, on the Shilapi. And the single year P is just under 20. The problem with the single year P is that if you have Monster E last year, yeah, we've got the, the E is flattered by two years of stimulus. And then, uh, well, the other problem with the E2 is if you have in 2000, 2008 and nine, because the bank losses yeah, were so negative. great, they wiped out all the other earnings of the S&P 500, you get a negative print and then you get an infinite PE, probably at the time that it was a pretty good time to be buying. Yeah. Schiller PE said it was long run value at that point, long run average. Something I've been thinking about recently is, um, you know, with the way that, so a big part, okay, let's back up a little bit. Complex systems, like what we're operating in, the global economy, markets, uh, they are a series of networks. And 
the tighter the density of the network, we've talked about this on the show before, the faster that things propagate through it. So contagion you know, happens faster, virality happens faster. Uh, and predictability is increasingly difficult of these types of things because you get small changes to inputs and very, very large changes in outputs, the whole like butterfly flapping its wings scenario, right? Um, so I, I've been wondering if, you know, in today's world of TikTok and, you know, Twitter and like our collective ADD of just moving on, like we get bored with topics incredibly quickly. Like there's a new strain of COVID that's going around the US and like no one cares anymore. Like they're, they're just over it. They're done. They're bored with that. They've moved on to something else. Uh, like are, are people like, when was last time you checked like Ukraine and Russia updates? Like, yeah, everyone's already bored with that. They've moved on to something else. Can, is it possible that people get bored with the markets too? Like they were kind of fascinated by the markets last year. You saw a lot of retail participation, but if they aren't, if prices aren't going up and it's not exciting and it's not hitting that dopamine for you hard, do you start to get bored with it? And then just, ah, eh, whatever, sell. I don't even care about the price anymore. I don't do that. That's for suckers games. Like you talk yourself out of it. Uh, what, that would be interesting to see what happens with that. Do you have any thoughts, TC? Yeah, the, the, the same thing happened in 2000, right? That it became like there were the day trading, uh, the rooms full of people who were day trading. And then that kind of just went away. And most people, I don't think really, we're everybody on this call and, and you and I are in the markets all the time. Most people aren't. Most people aren't paying attention at all. They don't really know. Like I, if, I used to get the update at the end of the year from my, from my retirement funds, tell me how much money I'd made or lost in the year. It's just like, you just didn't pay attention. Didn't you, really know. Back when you were a happier man. <laughs> <laughs> back when I was a lawyer. I, I, I. So it's a little bit hard to tell. Like I, I'm not, I'm not particularly good assessing sentiment because I just think that most people don't follow it particularly. But there did seem to be like a lot of day trading going on over the last few years. This I haven't really heard much. I, I, I do my Google check for for the NFT. Occasionally, that's that's not looking good for the NFT holders. I'm sorry, that's 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 approaching 52-week lows on Google interest in NFTs. Oh, it's well off its peak. Well, that's that's unfortunate if someone did, put too much you, money into that. Did you see that Kochu presentation that did the rounds? I did. Is, is that how you say it, Kochu? 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 I don't know. So that's they, how the French would say it. I think they had a pretty interesting analysis. I thought it was a, I thought that was a really interesting presentation. Anyway, was, they they said that in they they compared two thousand to today, and they said there were three phases of that. Did you share this chart to me? I'm just explaining to you what was in that I, chart I, that you shared yeah, to me. I sent that to you. <laughs> I went and read the whole presentation subsequently. Oh, oh, good. So I feel like I'm qualified to now speak on this topic. Good. Yeah, take it, run with it. I'm stealing it, but. To be fair, this was JT's idea, but the first the first third of it was the first third of that drawdown was uh, they call it profitless tech had a crash, right? So profitless tech. Um, this time around, it might be Arc, that type of the, the ETF, Kathy Woods ETF Arc. Haven't heard That's of that one for a little while. Profitless tech, a lot of profitless tech, and that that the chart for that is pretty nasty. It, it's sort of it falls 70 or 90% and then proceeds down to, to just nothing and it flatlines. And then there was profitable tech, which was the second phase that got hit. 
and that wasn't quite as precipitous, didn't fall as far and did eventually recover. And then there was just the general market, which was the final stage of the sell-off. And I, I kind of feel like we're coming into the third stage here at some point. Mm-hmm. And who really knows? I don't, I don't think that the timing of it is, is easy to figure out. But um, we're not there yet. I think it's like Q3 or 4. I guess we're in Q3 now. So end of Q3, Q4 or Q1 next year before you really see the fireworks. The more broad fireworks? Is that what you the mean? broader market fireworks, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's unclear who, and you never know this really, although I guess some smart people knew that like housing, who was swimming naked in housing, right? Uh, but like who's over levered today other than governments um, that would be in trouble if they can't get refinancing? I mean, you hear about all these zombie co- companies, right? Like those have to be, candidates for this like a big wipeout basically like we're taking equity to zero yeah like there's this like we're just there's bankruptcies that's a good crowd question you guys got any ideas about that yeah hard to know like was there that moment in 2000 was there like the the lehman moment in 2000 did that occur Uh, well i have to imagine that uh Canada had that with Nortel. I mean, Nortel was like 35 or something, 40% of the entire Canadian index, one company. Like it was super dominant. So when that tipped over, I have to imagine that was felt pretty Lehman-esque. Yeah, but it was, I I just mean more like the 2007, 2009 was like a credit crunch, right? And so it was, you're worried about your counterparties. And so that was why Lehman failing was significant because it meant that you had genuine counterparty risk and you couldn't just rely on your counterparties to be, you, you couldn't rely on the government to backstop your counterparties. I guess that's why, happening in crypto today. Yeah. But that is that, it, is that systemic? Does that spread out? Yeah. I don't know. Probably not too much to the rest of I don't know. We, we, I think we've asked before, like, what's the, what percentage of people have exposure to crypto? And it's got to be under, has to be under 50%, I would think. Yeah. Probably know. under 25, I would guess. Are you able to talk about the call that you dialed into? Mm, I don't Is know. Is it public? One, which one are we talking about? You seem co. Oh, yeah. That's public. Um, well, it's not that interesting of a story, but the, <laughs> There's some good slides in uh, Utemco's. Utemco is the Texas University of Texas endowment. Uh, so, and, and that they, was, the, was Kyle Bass. Is that Kyle Bass's? Is that, does I'm that one that Kyle sure. Bass sits on? What, what was the one that he went and bought all the, the you know, he went and bought all the nickels? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember this. I don't remember which entity that was for. Um, but they, these, they have regular updates uh, publicly available, and they do presentations and. They've got uh, in their most recent one uh, some decent slides with some good uh, historical figures in there that are kind of interesting. So they do some pretty good work, actually. Uh, that was what I was talking about before we we came on. Um, Twitter, Twitter and Elon, huh? What do you think? This is definitely Bill's category, uh, but well, I, I followed a little bit. I saw that they were. I saw that they were. Musk's lawyers are asking for a February date, or asking for a February date for the hearing. 
It seems like a long way out to me. Yeah. Apparently just this morning, I guess the, the chancery came back and sounds like it's going to be more fast track than that. What's the, what's the, what's the date? Uh, I don't know. Good. Damn it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm getting it all secondhand, but it, it looked to me, it didn't look to me particularly promising for Musk. Yeah, this what basically like what expedited. I saw. Yeah, was that it was sounds like it's going to be expedited. Sounds like it's going to happen more on the timeline of Twitter's prefer- preferences as opposed to the defendants. September, October. So that's could be. But he's got a lot of money to throw at the at legal team, right? So they can. Five day trial in October. Yeah. So I, I, I saw uh, somebody had a chart showing the ratio of the only, the only chart that matters is the ratio of Tesla valuation to Twitter valuation. And at the time of the bid, it was 19 times and now it's 12 times. Okay. So then Twitter's what? materially more expensive than it was when the bid started. <laughs> in measured in Elon bucks. <laughs> measured in Elon bucks in, in, in Tesla, in Tesla Shares. currency. Yeah, that makes sense. That's probably actually a pretty insightful metric. If you, if you're of the tinfoil hat opinion that the whole Twitter thing was just a, a ruse for him to dump a bunch of Tesla shares, like that he, you know, liquidate them so he could do something else with them. With a billion dollar break fee. <laughs> oh, that's nothing. It's got to be an easy way of doing that, right? You could just that, that round. You just zero. tweet it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair, but it's real cash though, right? Because he's leaving. Yeah, that's true. There's some price in there where he gets a margin call that is hard to meet for Tesla. I don't yeah. know where it is, but I think it's it could be five hundred or three fifty or, or something like that. Which is not that's not a, like wild things happen if the market falls over. You can see some funny prints. Wild things happen for it to get up to <laughs> that level. That was not a. It's a bit of a historical anomaly on its own. So when I when I when I look at all of the other um, analogies that we have for for this market as it's as it's rolling along, I still get the feeling that we haven't had that. One of the things that I look at particularly is the VIX, and if you look yeah. at the VIX, it's a little bit elevated relative to where it was last year, but it's nowhere near where it looked like in 2007 or 2000 like that we're nowhere near those numbers those or or even march 2020 so we haven't had a march 2020 moment yet in this in this drawdown which is the thing that makes me most nervous because i think that that's probably still coming yeah i mean it's uh it's an interesting question for all of the tail risk funds uh that hedge that way and if you get the slow meltdown like an old man getting into the bathtub style of, of, of market corrections. Uh, it's possible that those tail risk hedges don't pay off even in a dramatically down scenario, which the whole point of them was to protect you against that kind of thing. But if you never get that real punctuated, you know, VIX spiking type of drawdown, then you don't get the, that triggered asymmetry of the upside of a, the options exploding uh, upward, and then you don't get uh, you don't get paid, and you don't get basically your house burns down. But because it burns so slowly, the uh, the insurance company doesn't pay it out. I wonder if it's because there's so much 
hedging out there at the moment. I saw a tweet this morning that said that uh, the market participants have never been this hedged up this far off a really off a drawdown with twenty percent down, and they're still all hedged up like there's another forty percent to go, which would just get us back to the long run P Schiller P <laughs> average. Yikes. Just to scare everybody a little bit. Yeah. We're 41% over the long run Schiller PE average, which implies 2250, 2300 on my SP 500. Just for and those, a that was, uh, that was 10 years of strong profit margins, real right. strong. If so, anything, I mean, it might be overstated. Yeah. Might be a little bit overstated in a historical context. That seems crazy to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you're telling me there's a chance. There's <laughs> no okay. guarantee you stop it. There's no guarantee that you stop it, the long run average either. No. I mean, we bounced. And even in 2009, we bounced like right off of the, the average and went back up. Do you think people just go on vacation? Do you think like summers, it, it's just the vacuum tubes trading back and forth between each other? Right now. And then everybody gets back in fall and they're like, oh my God, what it's happened? still really bad. So. <laughs> Sell Mortimer. Yeah. I thought you guys were going to fix this by now. And then it's getting darker. Days are getting shorter. It's getting cold. That's right. Yeah. Everyone's like mentally, they're just kind of in a grouchy mood. Yeah. Has anybody I've, tested that? Yeah. I've seen, uh, I've seen that uh, study on that before about like sunlight and the amount of sunlight and returns. And it was positively correlated. Let's see if I could track down the study. I can't remember where I found it. What's your um, What's your update on the, you know, all the pieces that move to? You don't have to give us an update. Just just a reminder on all the you know margin rates. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't. I mean, there's not really an update per se. Like I had backward looking numbers for ten years that that showed the decomposition of returns. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And then I've put my own kind of theories together as to what I would be willing to underwrite for the next 10 years. But any of that time period in between that small, like doesn't really have, there's not much to speak about. Do you want to give us an update? Let us know where <laughs> we are. Like where, where, where's the, where's the most pressure do you think in that margins? Multiple. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think certainly I, I'm comfortable underwriting 3% for the growth rate, top line sales. So basically GDP growing. Um, that, who knows, like there's a fair amount of government printing that happens in that 3% previously. So if that keeps going, I don't know. But it, long, long term, that 3% has been pretty, pretty solid. So let's we can underwrite that. Um, profit margins, yes. Like that at currently like 13% is like way over. Uh, and if you believe... Um, if you believe that, uh, Grantham is not stupid when he says that profit margins are one of the most mean reverting data sets in all of finance, if you believe Buffett's not an idiot, when he says that do not expect more than about 6% to be yielded to capitalism, um, share of the pie to the owners. Uh, so we're at two X that, and we have been for quite a while. So I have a hard time imagining underwriting it growing from 13% to 20% or something to give you a bunch of returns. Uh, and then lastly, yeah, uh, share count is another component there. 
Uh, we levered up a bunch in the last 10 years to do share count buyback or to do buybacks, which if rates are rising, uh, you know, and, and corporate debt doubled over that time period to do those buybacks. Uh, I'm not sure you can pull that lever again for the next 10 years. And then lastly, the, the multiple, which as you know, is at a, as a very high, like the multiple from 2011 to 2021 gave you six, more than almost six and a half percent of per year per annum compounding return for you in the expansion of the multiple from 2011 to 2021. And you, as you mentioned, Cape, Cape is high. They all say like Cape is a crap. It doesn't tell you anything about timing, but it does rhyme with all the other valuation metrics like market cap to GDP, Tobin's Q. Uh, they all tell you the same thing that things are still very expensive. So uh, I, you probably kind of have to fade multiple a little bit. Uh, so you add all those things up and, and the dividends will probably give you a, a good 2% ish, I would think. Uh, but you know, it's hard to get a much above zero for the next 10 years for in, in, in one of these levers. And I don't know which of these, where I'm wrong on these, but I'm sure I'm wrong somewhere. I just don't know, uh, how, you know, how yeah. wrong am I and in what direction? <laughs> Looking back in 10 years time with the Shilapi at 60, you'll say, well, that was the problem. Yeah. You you'd say didn't if, expect margin well, expansion to. I mean, well, multiple yeah. expansion. Every, yeah, everyone. Yeah, exactly. That's we get like full Japan 1989 Schiller PE at 100 or something. We go, oh, well, that's how we were wrong. China hit 100, Japan hit 100. So the US has never hit 100. 44 is the top in April 2000. If you take that Schiller PE and you assume that it mean reverts to the average over 10 years, which is the, that's John Hussman's method, and I use that. On a, it's just I calculate it on a rolling basis. Have a little app that calculates that for me. The expected return now is so that assumes two percent in interest rate. Sorry, two percent in dividends. You get um, multiple compression over ten years from it'll it'll be thirty to about I think it's sixteen point six or seven. Yeah, seventeen ish is the long run right now. I think so. You get. 3.3% compound, including about 1.7% in dividends. And so when we look back, uh, the highest that it's been in recent memory was March 2020 when it got it got to like 5.3, I think, as a forward return. Uh, that was at the very bottom. But before then, you know, we've always had, we've had periods of time where it's delivered reasonably good forward returns. It's just that we're not now. And late last year, it was at 0.6%, which is just insane. Yeah. Particularly when the 10-year was at a pretty, was it a, was that a discount? To, I mean, it was the 10-year the gave you more yield. Yeah. Well, that's, that's not good. <laughs> if you were buying back then. So, that was, so what's it? So you get, does, is that like a zero forward return from your calculation? I mean, my underwriting, I'm looking at more like a minus two. Yeah. For 10 years compound? Yeah. Is it 10 years? Is that the period? It's like minus 20 total. Yeah. Wow. Which is sobering. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that that's like a little too pessimistic on one of those variables and that we don't see, maybe margins don't compress as much, maybe. Uh, and who knows? Like, look at, like, you can see five different ups and downs in the middle of a decade, right? Um, but it's just the starting point of this particular decade has started at such a tip top, similar rhyming to 99, how that looked and how it took, 
you know, you, it was a lost decade from 2000 to 2010 as well. So it wouldn't surprise me to have that same phenomena play out. The weird thing was, we now all remember the dot-com boom as being a dot-com boom, but it was really, that was fairly localized into a handful. I mean, they got very big, but it wasn't very many. It wasn't really a dot it wasn't just a dot-com bubble. It was a bubble in all of the other really high-quality stocks too. And the ones yeah. that I always remember. Even like, just big versus small. Yeah, it was like yeah. large cap was very, very expensive at that point. Well, it was the ones I always mentioned at Microsoft, Walmart, and GE, because that was right at the end of Neutron Jack's reign. And um, everybody loved GE, even though it was sort of, there, there was some, I do remember some articles at the time saying the return on equity has deteriorated quite a lot in GE yeah. and it's taken on quite a lot of debt. So th- those two things together weren't good, but it was like, it was one of the most respected companies around. And then you had Walmart had been winning for 25, 27, 28 years, something like that at that point. And Microsoft, of course, all of them were really expensive. And 15 years later, they were trading exactly where they were in 2000, like not, not on a multiple basis on a, the stock price was trading where it was yeah, 15 I mean, they, years later. You you have to grow into those kind of lofty expectations that are baked into a high stock price. And that can take a while. The only the only difference this time, I wouldn't say that FAMG or whatever you want to include in the top, it is a little bit of a movable feast, I guess. You, you just drop the one that's not working. So it yeah. used to be FANG, Netflix, it's not FANG anymore. <laughs> you, you haven't been doing well enough, you're out. Now you're in... Uh, and Meta's changed. Meta's not F anymore, so I don't know. I don't know what the current acronym is. You guys know what the current acronym is, is for that thing? I've got no idea. But it was like, um, say it's Facebook, which has been beaten up for Facebook-specific reasons. Then you've got Amazon and Apple, Microsoft, and well, Google's not G anymore either. It's an A. <laughs> so it's just M's and A's at the moment. Mama Jeez. or something like that. <laughs> But I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say they're egregiously expensive as a group, and that's the bulk of the index. Well, that's twenty five percent of the index, something like that. Yeah, that's true. They might. Um, there could be some weight carried. Mango. For the next ten years, mango. What's the O? Mang. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you mang. don't get a G. And we're dropping Netflix, so it's Mama or something like that. Magnet. <laughs> oh boy. I'm worried where this is going to go. Is that what it was? <laughs> All right. Should we do some uh, veggies? Let's vegetables? do some veggies. You've been All resting right. enough, so it's time for you to do some work. Yeah, no shit. This is like, I feel like the donkey carrying the load here. Um, so, <laughs> so this week, we are going to be talking about learning environments. And we, you know, we've touched on some of these subjects in the show, but I haven't done like a full treatment of it yet, I don't believe. So this... This is going to be um, a lot of it's based on Robin Hogarth's work, who is a researcher that studied different learning environments. And um, he separates them on a spectrum from kind to wicked. And the thing to remember about it is that in kind learning environment, patterns recur. The situation is constrained so that like think about like a chessboard, like, you know, the pieces have knowable, movable options and they don't deviate from those. Every time feedback is quick and obvious and 100% accurate, and all the information is available. So like a chessboard, you're looking, you could see all the pieces, right? So on the one end, very extreme side, we have you know something like chess. Uh, golf is also falls within there because it's not like, well, 
I have lost a fair number of balls, but theoretically all the, the information is available uh, where your ball went. Um, <clears throat> but you get feedback like readily as soon as you hit it, watching the flight path, all of that stuff. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have the, a wicked inver- environment, which is the exact opposite of all that stuff. Information is often hidden. Feedback is delayed. It's infrequent or even non-existent. Uh, wicked environments reinforce the wrong type of behaviors. So you could think like, all right, well, where does the investment world kind of fall when it comes to kind versus wicked learning environments? And I think it's pretty pretty far on the wicked side myself. I don't, Toby, what do you think? Yeah, it's wicked for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're in agreement. Um, uh, Hogarth, Hogarth has this famous example that he talks about. There was this apparently like very eminent, prominent physician who he came to prominence because he was uh, he could accurately predict when someone would get typhoid weeks before they had any symptoms. And he did this by somehow like palpitating their tongue with his bare hands. Like giving and them typhoid. typhoid. What it turned out was that he was actually giving them typhoid. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sorry, dude. I didn't know that was actually going to be the answer. No, well, yeah. I mean, he's learning the completely wrong lessons, right? Like because he's uh, introducing a fair amount of error into the system. Um, so, the uh, in chess, you know, let's go back to that as a as an example. It's relatively easy to automate chess when in like for a program to solve it because it is so constrained, and because the the feedback loops are easier to be closed between what becomes a winning move or not. So that's how it, it can be automated. And you can create programs, and you if you store enough data about like different moves and where they lead to, you know, you get this kind of repeating patterns that happen. And I think that markets actually do have this. There is some repeating patterns that you can learn from, but there, and, and in businesses as well, like there's a lot of repeating patterns within businesses that I think the best investors recognize and they see something that, and it rhymes with something else that they've either owned or studied. Uh, and that allow, that gives them some insight as to why it might be mispriced. But it's not as clear to me that it's as easy to figure out as something like chess, which all of which means like I would be surprised if AI was a thing that we really had to worry about in the investment world within the next, you know, within our lifetimes. What do you think about that? I think that the um, the experience with poker and the experience with um, Go. So you know, Go is a Go is a more fluid game than traditional chess, and then. Poker, I think that AI has been trained to play heads up. So it plays one-on-one. And the problem was always that good professional poker players can deduce, you know, not, not facial tells, but they can look at the betting of the machine and they can start figuring out because the machine's just too literal. It doesn't, it, there's no, it, so they had to teach the, the machine how be to- be more sneaky. They had to teach it to, um, to bluff. But once they taught it to bluff, it became it became hard to beat, and it was as a learning machine. And it, I think that in heads up poker, the best heads up poker player is now a machine. I think, and that happened a few years ago. I think the next step beyond that is playing with multiple players in a hand, which I think that if anything, that might be easier than heads up. It seems to be a problem to solve. So hmm. I think it's solvable. I, I I think that machines could solve it, but then that doesn't necessarily mean that the that it's over for humans because you're looking for the things that have become cheap. Like that's the, that's the signal. That's the sign that you're looking for, right? 
Yeah. So you can still find those. Was my point. Yeah. Right. I think, uh, I guess the question would be, is there some reason to expect that like the pat the AI will get so much better at matching patterns that there's no room left for human creativity? No, I don't think so. I think that the best ones will always be, what do they call that? Centaur? Centaurs. Yeah. Humans with chess machines. I think that that'll be, that, that'll be the best thing in the market. It'll be something like a human with a, a computer helping make the decisions. So one last story in this, this veggie segment, uh, there's this golfer named Matt Fitzpatrick and he was, uh, he won at some big amateur in 2013. He was young, uh, but he just won the U S open this year. And the interesting thing about him is that for the last 13 years, so since he was 14 years old, he has been writing details about every shot that he's taken, whether it was a practice round with friends or, you know, in, you know, in the U S open, he has a little book that he writes down. He'll write like what club, the lie of the ball, the how the wind was, and then the result. And every single shot without fail. And what's even more important actually is that he writes down what his intentions were versus what actually happened. So if you watch, you know, let's say that, uh, you know, you see him and he hits it and the ball like, you know, is to the right of the pin by 10 yards. Well, he's the only one who knows that he was actually aiming 20 yards to the left of the pin, right? So that it ended up being, he was actually 30 yards off, but no one could really tell. So that, and and by the way, all of these, like the data that he records on this stuff guides his practice so that he goes back and like, he realizes, oh man, I've been having trouble with this particular lie, maybe with this, you know, approach or uh, this club, so whatever combination of it is. And so he works on those types of things. His, his practice is guided by his, to the feedback loops that he's closing by recording. Wow. So I have to imagine that if you are serious about this game of investing, like Matt is serious about his golf game. You have to be writing down some of these types of things, like the, what you're seeing, what your intention was, how you think things are going to play out so that you can go back and see like, okay, here, where am I making mistakes consistently? How can I close these feedback loops? And by the way, golf is a much kinder learning environment where the feedback is readily available to you. It's unambiguous. All the information is there. The investing world is not kind as we have already, I think both agree. So it's even more imperative that you write these kinds of things down and keep track of this stuff because otherwise I think you're just, you're, you're playing behind the eight ball so much. I don't know how you're not going to get beat by someone who else is. I think you might've missed your metaphor, mixed your metaphor there. <laughs> That's what I'm good at. Um, do you know of any service that can provide that kind of recording feedback loop? I've heard of one. Yeah. That might be coming out soon. That would be good for that. But uh, <laughs> you, you're wearing the shirt last week. You can't, you I can't was, do yeah. that. Still. Uh, yeah, we could say it. I mean, it's a program that I'm building uh, called Journalytic, but um, there's still a lot of stuff to be built. That's going to make it even better. Don't want to get it out too early. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You, you need, you need some, um, f- you need to build in a feedback mechanism for investing otherwise it's just impossible to remember what you were thinking at the time and, and even if you even if you could everything that happens subsequently colors the way that you think about something if the stock goes down a lot 
you become probably less enthusiastic about it. And if the stock goes up a lot, you become more enthusiastic about it. Well, I think about this all the time with um, if most people, and I think this is probably true, is that the price really colors how they're feeling about a particular stock. And, and, a, and what that ends up happening is that when it's down and you go pull up the next 10Q you know, that comes out and you go, you start seeing negative stuff. Like you are looking for, like the price will drive your interpretation of the numbers and, and what the management is saying. Uh, or the other way as well, where if like it's been rocketing up, you're going to see all kinds of amazing things in the numbers that are just came out, right? Like, and justify why you're so smart, why this is working so well, why it should keep working. It's just human nature to extrapolate these things too far upwards or too far downwards. So if you're not doing something to keep track of how you're feeling and put a check on that and, and really like know what your sentiment is as, in real time as you're doing it, I think you're, you're very likely to overshoot one way or the other. There's also a lot of momentum in the in the results too, right? So if it's going in your direction, then it's justified. You're smart. If it's going against you, then it's a value trap and you should be out. Whereas if you're buying these things, they're probably already sold off quite a lot and they're having some problems at a business level. And it's just a matter of figuring out when they can resolve that issue. Yeah. I'm, and I don't think that describes most people's approach though. I think most people are buying something that's really been working and they think it's just going to keep working. That might be where I'm going wrong. <laughs> the stuff that's been working. Yeah. Wait, you can get them when they're working? That's a thing? Uh, dudes, if you've got any questions, throw them in. We'll, we'll answer questions for the last 15 minutes. I have one more quote real quick from, uh, Aunt, from Annie Duke that I really like. She says, writing down the key facts informing your decision acts like a vaccine against hindsight bias. Mm. So we probably got canceled because we said vaccine, but, uh, or there goes our. <laughs> We're recommending a vaccine in this instance. Oh, shit. Oh, you're not allowed to do that either. I don't know. No, you can't do anything. Um, yeah, this has been a, this has been a frustrating period. I would say particularly for, for value because it's been beaten up and then when it looked like it was going to rally a little bit, it's, it's caught the, uh, the systemic drawdown. Which I thought you said hadn't even started yet. <laughs> well, it's definitely started. It's just not finished. Phase, phase three of the uh, systemic. Phase three. But I went back and I looked at, um, you know, back tests of my models through 2000, 2000, that 2000 drawdown, the 2007 drawdown. And you're basically just in free fall until you find the bottom. Like that, there's, that, there's that pervasive sort of myth probably from the early 2000s when value just been so beaten up going into the drawdown that it recovered first while everything else was in a shambles while all the profitless tech was still selling off. But, um, so you're saying that's not, that doesn't, your, your data don't support that. No, not ordinarily. You, you, everything just sells off. It doesn't matter what, whether it's undervalued or overvalued. You don't want to be in the overvalued stuff. It does seem to send off, sell off more. Oh yeah. So we, I, I got, I, I don't know this stuff. So, Charlie Munger has invested with this Australian private equity um, private company that the guy's trying to build the Australian Berkshire Hathaway. It's called Stonehouse. I think it's really cool. I'm, I'm, it's, it's exciting to see it happening, but I don't really know anything about it. I'd never heard of the gentleman before the article came out. The Wall, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article. Did you send that through to me as well? I think I did. <laughs> yeah. 
you got to spread out your news flow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool for that guy. I, I'm sure his phone is ringing off the hook and I've heard that he's already, he's closed to outside investors. So raise some more money. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good for him though. Yeah. I don't really want to talk about any individual stocks though. I continue to hold uh, HPQ. Uh, I've held it since I launched the the thing that I do, and uh, I continue to hold it because it it's all the things that I like. It's throwing off cash flow and buying back stock, and it's cheap. Um, but that's a good I, combination. That's the probably the for, combination that wins over the next ten years. Well, I hope so. But the market for uh, yeah, I got no I got no view on the market for printers. I got one; it didn't cost me much. <laughs> I turn them over every few years, and they I spend less on them than I did the time before. But none of them work. No. I mean, I, I think it's just an absolute, maybe maybe we're all just moving to completely paperless offices, but I imagine if there was a printer out there that worked, then that'd be a billion dollar idea at least, like a billion dollars. Yeah, printer, but one that works. Why has nobody thought of that before? I don't know. You can't sell that razor, razor blade model with the, with the ink cartridges. I never use cyan. Why is that the one that's always running out? <laughs> I never print anything that color. I always print in black. You're telling me it's printing. I've got a black cartridge. Why is it printing all three colors? Yeah, I did just talk about it. You're right. There you go. I talked about HPQ. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that gentleman. I regret putting him in one of my in one of my books. Uh, he got what he deserved, probably. Yeah, big bounce today. Um, who knows why? Any given day can be just noise, noise, short covering. Maybe it's all over. Maybe we're just rocketing back to all-time highs. Rock on. Anything can happen. Xerox at half-times book. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know it at all. Does that, sound, that sounds like HPQ. It does. They make printers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that a good... Uh... I mean, was there a hotter, more futuristic company than Xerox in the nineteen what sixties? Did you see that ad? It was on. Uh, it was on Twitter last week, where um, they were showing Xerox Park. They had this. Um, I think this is in the eighties. They'd set up this office, and they were of able the to receive email. Yeah, they were able to see this email, and the guy would just went through his the, the letters that he had been sent on electronically. No and way. And it was just showing him. He'd got one and he thought, I, there are some other people who need to see this. So he then forwarded it on to other people. And it was just absolutely space age stuff at the time. Impossible. Like the future will never be like, they, they called it pretty, pretty well. It was, that's exactly what happened. You, you've got no idea what great functionality the carbon copy is. So you're like, whatever you're the darling, you know, business that you're in love with at some point could trade at half of just a commodity book value, right? I totally mean, commodity. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm. I'm excited for the Stonehouse gentleman. I just, I just don't know. I've never, I've never heard of him before. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I thought everyone knew everyone in Australia. This is. I, 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 yeah, I should probably pretend like I do. I, I know lots of people. Who, I know I, my six degrees of separation to Charlie Munger is really short. I know lots of people who know Charlie Munger. I just don't know Charlie Munger. Including my my co-host here, Jake Taylor. He got prank called. Hello, you've gone. It's just me. JT's hung up, so it's going to be ten minutes of me talking to the camera. Where are you, JT? 
Uh, is that Serotage, SRG? I don't know, guys. That's that's an that's an ugly one. Um, folks, I guess this is going to be a uh, soliloquy from me if I if I don't if I don't hang up now. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with uh, three people. Still no Bill, but it'll be Jake and somebody else, and then me. But uh, 